When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Celeste Headley about her new book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Welcome to the show, Celeste. Thank you. It's good to be here. I am so glad to have you here and to talk about this very important topic. I know my listeners are very interested in how to do nothing because they are doing way too much. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. I am. uh, My training through graduate school is all in music. I used to sing opera professionally and still sometimes do. But since then, I have been uh, in public broadcasting with NPR and PBS and others for over 25 years um, and got involved in the conversational space um, about 10 years ago. Uh, So that's when I began doing the research and writing books on both conversation and lifestyle and kind of well-being. And our listeners are not surprisingly in some way uh, affiliated with the academic life. They're students or they will be students soon or they're professors. So I like to ask people, could you tell us a bit about your own path through higher ed, why you chose what you chose and how it went for you? Yeah, I mean, I come from a family of of expensively educated people um, going back to my great, great, No, just my great grandmother who um, was born on a slave plantation and then uh, got her degree at Atlanta University. So there's a long tradition in my family. I started studying music um, because there was a music scholarship open at a time when I would have preferred studying classical theater. And then when I got out of school, as any musician knows, I needed to um, have a day job. So I continued singing and then also took a job in journalism as to, you know, to pay most of the bills. But, you know, the thing about journalists is that, that, you know, to be a good journalist, you have to be good at researching. And I think one of the things that I found, especially as I interact with a lot of academics and scientists, especially, is one of the talents that I have is to take very complicated material and explain it in a very clear way. um, So that even someone who's sitting in their car driving on the way to work can understand issues of economics or political science or even neuroscience. Um, And that's a, that's a relatively unique skill. Um, and it served me pretty well. I mean, I find that often, um, scientists, especially researchers are more willing to talk with me because I do my homework and I'm very careful to make sure that I am saying exactly what their study says, no more and no less than what it says. And, you know, that's, that's a real danger in journalism when you try to create a kind of a, uh, an exciting headline, but you're, what you're saying is not what the study found. So, you know, in terms of research, I, I consider that I've been basically doing it for a very, very long time. I have a lot of knowledge about a lot of different areas and deep knowledge and experience in only a couple. It sounds like 
your family of origin perhaps uh, made it sound like, of course, Celeste will go to college. Yes, of course. Yeah. It would have been weird if I had not. Would it also have been weird if you didn't go to graduate school? No, I think... I think people would have accepted me not going to graduate school. Um, although, you know, my grandfather has nine honorary doctorates. Um, and my parents met when my, my father was going to graduate school at, at USC. He was a marine geologist. So it, I, although I don't think it would have been cause for comment if I had not gone to graduate st- school, it also wasn't special <laughs> or worthy of remark that I decided to get uh, a higher degree. Nine. Nine. Honorary yeah. doctorates. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I thought that everybody's family had a trophy case in their living room. Turns out that's not true. Um, but yes, he, he had nine honorary degrees, um, and a whole lot of keys to the city and, um, mm-hmm. to different cities. And, you know, he's a, he's a genius with a capital G. I'm just imagining the sheer number of frame things on the wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think he stopped framing them. Um, my grandmother started just keeping a scrapbook where she would insert the pages in there. Um, like I said, there was a trophy case for all the actual like statues and objects that he received. Um, but, you know, he was one of the most highly awarded composers in America's history. I mean, I think for me, in terms of my academic career, I think that was freeing for me. um, Because although that's a high standard to live up to, it's also an unattainable standard. So that's really freeing. (laughs) You're you're not going to be the most decorated or brilliant person in your family. And it kind of gives you some leeway to to choose what you're going to be and what you're going to do. My thought as you were speaking was growing up in that environment, no wonder you wrote a book about overworking and (laughs) overdoing. You've observed it from the inside and you saw how he sustained himself. It sounds like he had quite a career. And in order to do that over the long run, some musicians have a big flash. And then we just don't really hear see much from him again. It sounds like he had a very long sustained career. And you, I think, saw from the inside, maybe by osmosis, or maybe you were little Celeste was earnestly making mental notes, but the overworking part doesn't allow you to keep doing. Yeah. And, you know, he, watching my grandparents, um, in their lifestyles was incredibly informative to me. Sadly, it took me a very long time to really realize what I was seeing because my grandfather had a lot of support from his wife. Now, my grandmother was very accomplished in her own right. She was a concert pianist. That's how they met. Um, She was a journalist. She wrote books on South American dance. Um, So, and, you know, we're talking about they got married in, I think, something like 1939, and she kept her own name. She was also a a Jewish, a, a white woman who married a black man in the 1930s. So she was no slouch. Like she was quite an individual, but she took over his correspondence for him. She took over handling his calendar and all those other things. And so that allowed him to be able to simply write. And the other thing I learned from him is a, he was very intent on keeping up all of his hobbies. He was an avid, um, a fan of model trains. Um, 
he built a lot of the furniture in their home. He built these adorable toys for his children. He was a gardener. Um, but when it was time for him to work, he went back into his music room and he, he closed the door. He got dressed in a three-piece three piece suit with wingtips um, out of respect for his task. And he, he completely focused on what he was doing. And when he was not able to focus anymore, he opened the door and he was done with work. <laughs> and again, I don't, it took me a very long time, not until I really began the research for this book, which grew out of frustration um, with my own life that I was so overworked, so overwhelmed, so tired all the time. It wasn't until I really began to sort of interrogate my own upbringing that I began to realize that I didn't learn those lessons from him and from my grandmother that I didn't learn to alternate um, deep focus with relaxation and and idleness that was not inactive, if you know what I mean. So yeah, it was it was very instructive to me, and I wish I had um, thought about it more deeply at an early at a younger age. But it came back to you when you needed it, as you. Yeah mentioned in the book, you, you referenced your grandparents. One of the things you said is their gardening today would be possibly described as a waste of time and that you were an avid cross-stitcher. It was something that you don't, devoted hours to happily. And it was something that you had discarded as the grind of your career became so intense. And as you were doing the research for this book and you were really unpacking the loss of work-life balance that is the modern world, you remembered their garden and you took back up your cross-stitching. Yeah. And, and yeah, their garden, you know, my garden, my grandfather's garden, and this is in the middle of Los Angeles. Like they don't know if, if somebody knows Los Angeles well, they lived right near the corner of Pico and Crenshaw, not far from a uh, Korean town. Um, and so we're not talking about a rural area, but he was such an avid gardener. He would end up with so many extra vegetables and things. He would walk down the street with a basket full of zucchinis and lettuces and, and his neighbors would close their windows. Cause they're like, I can't take any more squash, <laughs> Dr. Steele, no more lettuce. Um, and you know, I, that, that was a big epiphany moment for me when I sat down on my couch after a long day at work and I was just exhausted. And I'm sure you know the kind of exhaustion I mean, where it, it feels visceral, um, the fatigue. And I just thought, I cannot, po- I'm going to have to order out again. I cannot possibly get up and make dinner, even though I love to cook. And then I, I I looked into my kitchen and I began to notice all of the things that I have that saved me time that my grandmother did not have. You know, this incredibly efficient washing machine and I have a toaster oven and I have a, a coffee machine that you literally push one button and it makes espresso and I have a robot vacuum and all these other things that I have. And so I picked up a pad and I started walking around the house, adding up the time that I have that she didn't have. And it came out to well over 20 hours a week. And that's when I started to ask myself, okay, where is this time going? We have spent, we have invested so much into time-saving devices. And if we have all these time-saving devices, where's all this time that we've saved? 
How is it that I'm more tired? How is it that she was able to do, she and my grandfather made homemade jigsaw puzzles and, you know, read all of the Oz books. People know the first Wizard of Oz book, but there's lots of them, (laughs) read all of them. They collected them. They went to concerts. They went to art galleries. Um, They had you know, games of cards with their neighbors, like, you know, as I mentioned, the, the, the gardening, how were they able to have time for all that, despite having fewer time-saving devices? And that was a, a big eye-opening moment for me to realize that I was not as aware of where my time is going as I thought I was. And that brought me to this 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 scientific concept of time perception, which is, is really... Your your the accuracy um, of your uh, knowledge of your own of where your time goes, and the truth is that most of us have very low time perception. We are not quite accurate in knowing how we spend our time, what we do with our days. So that was one of the very first things I had to fix. The book is divided into two sections. Part one is called The Cult of Efficiency, and it takes us back basically to the Industrial Revolution that wrecked our sense of time and agency over time. And part two is called Leaving the Cult, How to Go from Life Hack to Life Back. And that's really where you talk to us about time perception. Yeah. Um, and it's you break it down into two really, for me, two really core eye-opening things. One is that there's how we're actually spending our time And then there's this other thing, which is how we feel we are spending our time. And you suggest that we keep uh, a diary. And as someone who's a historian who did her dissertation on journals, I was like, ooh, I'm going to ask Celeste about this diary keeping method. So Celeste, please tell us about how this diary keeping will help us deal with what you were just mentioning about time perception. So it's kind of the same concept as when you go to a nutritionist, oftentimes one of the first things they'll ask you to do is simply take note of what you eat and and when you're eating. Um, Some of them will even ask you to keep track of what your mood is while you're eating, right? They're just trying to get an idea. Uh, And it was the same thing here, you know, because when I started keeping track of my time and literally all that I did was grab a a notebook (laughs) from, from the bookstore separated into half hour segments for the day from waking to sleeping. And every half hour, every hour, I would write down what I would, what I had done just prior. And I was just brutally honest because I knew nobody else was going to be looking at that diary. So I could be honest. If I spent 90 minutes looking at boots online, I wrote it down. And what I discovered was that I was spending way more time idly surfing the internet and like refreshing social media feeds uh, than I ever wanted to or dreamed that I was doing. And there's a couple things about that. Number one, you know, the next step after you've kept this diary is to ask yourself, okay, how much time do I think I should spend each day on Instagram? How much time would I want to spend? Right? So when you begin to track your time and you, and you, and you realize, okay, so if I'm working for this amount of time each day, if I'm awake for 16 hours a day and eight of that is going to be spent doing my work and at least two of that is going to be spent eating and, um, Uh, maybe another two is going to be spent doing errands or laundry or whatever it may be. We're up to 12 hours. So you have four hours left with your day. What do you want to do with that? 
in my case, I had four or five hours per day that I get to choose what I wanted to do. And when I put it in that light, obviously I don't want to spend nearly more than a third of that time looking for shoes, shopping for shoes that I'm not going to buy. <laughs> right. And so it, it helped me to sort of reframe the way that I spent my time and where it was going and, and how I was, I was wasting it, not in, not in a, a lazy way, but more like the way that, you know, you sit down to watch a movie with a, with a bag, a bowl of popcorn next to you. And by the time you get done with the movie, you've eaten the entire bowl, right? Because you've just idly without thinking kept eating. And, and that's the way so many of us are spending our time. We're not thinking, we're not being intentional and thoughtful and aware of where our time is going. And that's why we feel sometimes overwhelmed. The other portion to this that's important to remember is that your brain doesn't distinguish between the time that you spend on your phone um, reading Facebook posts or looking at um, shopping for things or looking at photos on Instagram. It does not distinguish between that and doing work. So, so often we'll get up, we'll take a break from our computer um, or, or from our work. And the first thing we do is pick up our phones but as far as your brain is concerned and therefore your entire physiology, you're still working. So essentially you'll go the entire day without once taking a break. And then what do you do? You either, maybe you're working remotely, so you're still already at home, but you go home either literally or metaphorically, and you still keep that phone in your hand. And as far as your brain is concerned, you're still working. And then we climb into bed and we're looking at our phones. And as far as your brain is concerned, you're still working. So we're going through our entire days, number one, not keeping track of what we're doing with our time, but also never giving our, our bodies and our brains a break. You mentioned social media as a way that people think they're taking a break. And uh, in the next chapter, take the media out of your social, uh, you talk about how when we're on social media, we're making comparisons and it's creating a culture of perfectionism that's driving anxiety. The brain is trained in many ways to do something with what we give it. So in a way, it makes sense that if we're scrolling through social media, it's going to start making categories and comparisons. But from what you just described, it could be the most tiring, depleting part of our workday. If that's where we're going to relax, we're actually going and making ourselves feel worse. Yeah. And, you know, think about that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? And this is something that a number of sociologists have noted on, and I quoted a few of them in the book. Um, what that used to mean as, as recently as the 1970s, 80s, and even 90s, keeping up with the Joneses meant keeping up with your neighbors, the lifestyle of your neighbors. So people um, would have a neighborhood barbecue in their backyard. That's something people used to do. <laughs> um, and your neighbor would say, hey, we just got a new Mustang. You got to come over and take a look. I'll take you for a spin in it. And it would, it would, we would draw comparisons between that person and ourselves. Even then, making comparisons with, with someone else, it can be motivating. It can um, drive you to try harder. And it can also be demotivating in that it makes you feel unsatisfied with the life that you have. But back then, the comparison was at least relatively realistic. 
most people live in a neighborhood with others who have a a, a, a relatively similar salary, relatively similar background and, and um, situation. Now we go on social media and the, what we're seeing is the Kardashians and um, Cardi B and Beyonce. <laughs> and w- that's who we're comparing ourselves with. And not only is that demotivating because it's absolutely unattainable, but that is going to bring you a lot of anxiety. It's going to make you feel bad about yourself. It can lead to depression. There's all kinds of negative psychological effects uh, that come from comparing yourself with an unattainable standard. So we're not, you know, one sociologist says, you know, we're not keeping up with the Joneses anymore. We're keeping up with the Kardashians and, and, you know, it's sort of ironic that that's the name of their show because it's that's a warning sign to me. That's not a keeping up with the Kardashians. That's not possible and it's not healthy. And it's unlikely that even they are keeping up with the Kardashians. Yeah, of course they're not. Of course they're not. You talk in the first half of the book about what leisure time used to be, that there were a lot of festivals in most cultures. There was a lot of off time and holiday time, and that this was a centuries old um, tradition that started to disappear in many cultures after the Industrial Revolution. And one of the things that you urge us to do in the book is to reinvest in leisure time. You took a train trip, which you introduce us to a bit in the book. Can you tell us about how you walked your own walk and talked your own talk by getting on a train and going all over the place? Yeah, I basically booked... Um, a train trip around the entire continental United States. So I started in DC, I headed down to Atlanta, I went across to New Orleans. The next train took me across to Los Angeles. Then there's a gorgeous train ride up the coast of California to Seattle. Uh, and then across probably one of the most beautiful train rides that have been through. It went through the Glacier National Park, just absolutely stunning to Chicago, then over to Boston, then back down to DC. Uh, And as you say, it took me just under two weeks time and trains travel. Trains don't always travel along highways, right? I mean, sometimes trains travel through mountains (laughs) and mountain ranges where there's no Wi-Fi. Um, And so there are plenty of times when you're on the train, when you can't get a signal And I, you know, I noticed at first, my whole point in taking that train trip was to sort of unplug, forcibly unplug, and to have a conversation with the people on the train. You know, one of the wonderful things about Amtrak trains is they have a dining car and and all of your meals, um, you go into the dining car and they just seat you with whoever's there. They just fill up the booths. So you don't have control over who you're sitting with. And that's awesome. Um, in fact, the studies have shown that younger generations actually particularly enjoy that part of the Amtrak train because um, I think it, it rarely happens. But, you know, I would sit down and I'd say, hey, my purpose for being on this train is to be social, to, to listen to people, hear their stories. So tell me something about yourself. Tell me a story. And I didn't have a single person um, not engage with me. I'd even bought bribes. I brought a bought a bag of truffles, <laughs> wrapped truffles, individually wrapped truffles. And I was like, hey, tell me your story and I'll offer you a tro- chocolate. I didn't even have to use any of them. Like people were just ready to tell me their stories about themselves, their lives, the people they loved, the things that they loved. Um, and it was 
so liberating. It really was. I mean, it was anxiety. I, I had experienced anxiety at the beginning of the train trip, you know, going to my phone and seeing no bars. But as I began to get used to it, as the days passed by and I realized, wow, there, there really are other things to do. We, we really can survive without a phone. Um, you know, I relaxed. I just started to really enjoy it. It was, I can't wait to do it again. Frankly, I, I absolutely would spend at least a couple weeks on the train every year if I could. You mentioned that one of the people that you met on the train was a young woman and she was flabbergasted at how long your trip was going to take. And she said, oh no, her department at work would literally fall apart if she tried to do that. And you kind of invite us to sit with that in the book. The idea that things would fall apart without us, how our busyness is our identity, how our identity reinforces our sense that we're important, which reinforces our sense that we have to be busy. It's, I could almost draw a circle of arrows pointing to all the things that you mentioned. We keep reinforcing why we get stuck in this, this productivity um, trap. How, how did you initially feel, though, when this woman said this to you? Because at first you were panicking over um, detoxing from your phone. And now this woman kind of presents you with, you know, a version of you that you were right before you got on the train, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, by the time that interaction occurred, I'd been on the train for a week. And so my reaction um, was I was bemused. I mean, I recognized her. She was relatable to me. <laughs> I, I understood why she would say that. Um, but I also felt so lucky that I didn't, I was out of that mindset. Um, and I almost wanted to say to her, says who? Right? We have all these assumptions. You can't say things like your department would fall apart. Says who? You try, ever tried it? Like according to whom? Is your department going to fall apart? What what evidence are you basing that on? Um, because when I, I'm trying it right now, I'm an extremely busy person. I'm the head of my own company. Um, and I was able to take a two-week ride getting only spotty internet. I mean, you, you pass through a lot of big cities. I don't want to make it sound like you're disconnected the whole time. Um, but, you know... You can survive. I mean, people forget we've only had iPhones since like 2007, I believe. And it it really hasn't been that long since we survived perfectly well without a smartphone in our pockets all the time. This fear that we have every time you leave the house and you realize you don't have your phone with you and there's like a grip, it's almost like, like a fist has suddenly tightened itself around your heart real quick. That's just a measure of how addictive we have become. It's not a measure of how dependent we are on the phone. You can get by without the phone. I swear to you, you can. You also have empathy, though, for her uh, and for others who are yeah. who are in that trap because it was fairly recently that your career changed and your finances changed to where you didn't feel so desperately worried about where the next paycheck would land you financially. You understood people who feel like I need to do the overtime so that my boss sees how hard I'm working because if they bump up my salary even a little bit, this will give me a little bit of ease, a little bit in the bank. I think 
for people from other countries listening, they don't understand why Americans don't use their vacation time. But you you do. You've been in that trap of being terrified that if you take a little time away, financially, everything will fall apart because your boss won't see that you're indispensable anymore. Oh, yeah. I spent most of my adult life being terrified. You know, I was a single mother. I was, you know, always living paycheck to paycheck. And sometimes that paycheck didn't cover what I needed to cover. If they were, I rem- I still remember the, the time when my son was just entering first grade and he, I had bought him all of the, you know, I don't know if you have kids, Christina, but um, at the beginning of the school year, the school will send you a long list of the supplies that they need. And it's huge. Yeah, it's really long. And to somebody like me, um, who at that time was making maybe thirty-two, thirty-four $34,000 a year as a public radio reporter in Detroit, um, it was expensive. It was a big expense for me. And I just bought him a brand new uh backpack and he his birthday's in August so he had I had actually bought him this was one of those little handheld game players and that was the big purchase for him that year and he set the backpack down while he went to go on the playground and some other kid stole it and I just remember the panic I felt thinking I don't have this <laughs> I don't have the money to replace what was inside that backpack and having to explain to my son that it was gone. Like his brand new birthday present, that was it. I I can't replace it for you. I mean, there's so many complicated feelings. I mean, even now I'm getting a little choked up about it. Like there's so many complicated feelings associated with that. And it's not just panic. It's also just this feeling of that you're a failure, right? I mean, I can't even provide for my kid. You know, I have to watch my kid cry and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Um, and here he is six years old and he's having to already understand that the world is just unfair. Um, so I absolutely understand that this book was not at all written from a place of financial privilege. (laughs) You know, I have read some of those books. I've read those ones that are like, Oh, go travel the world. And after college, I wasn't ready to get a job. And, and so I traveled to Eastern Europe or whatever it may be. I'm not trying to diminish those experiences. That's awesome. If you have the ability to do that, that was never a possibility for me. And I have to assume for most people, it's not a possibility. I had student loans up the wazoo. So I totally get where the fear comes from. Some of that fear is justified. Some of it is not. Sadly, our entire system is designed in a completely illogical and unhealthy way to where even our managers are using this 19th and sometimes 18th century mindset when they manage us, thinking that the longer that you work, if you're the person that comes in early and stays late, that makes you a more valuable employee. That's complete crap. It's not true. And it's bad and lazy management. But if that's the kind of manager you have, what are you going to do? How else do you get ahead? So I, I get it. Of course, I understand. Um, the, the, the kind of changes we need at this point to, to allow us to enjoy well-being are revolutionary. There's some things that we can do on our own. There's some changes that we can make in our own lives that will ease this pressure. But overall, this is going to have to be a movement. And while we try to figure out how to do the movement, which involves 
complexities, which is why a lot of us are stuck in the problems that we're stuck in financially at work, you invite us to do what we can where we can. So similar to your grandfather going in a room and shutting the door, and that's one part of his life and coming back out and being involved in another part of his life, you invite us to try to make an emotional and psychological divide between work hours and personal hours, even if our personal hours are fewer than they ought to be, to really make a conscious decision that when we're off work, we are really off work. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's it's a concept that came from a, a think tank in, um, I think, New Zealand, maybe Australia, but in any case, they called it polluted time. And this has come especially uh, severe over the course of the pandemic. I knew going into the pandemic, I was so worried um, because we were already in a toxic situation. And I just was like, you know what? We're not going to make the right decisions. (laughs) And we didn't. Um, So, you know, when you have trouble sleeping, right? If you suffer from insomnia, one of the first things the doctor will tell you is um, that you should use your bed only for sleeping. Because you need to train your brain that the bed is for sleeping so that when you get into bed, it gets into sleep mode. It's the same thing here with work. If you grab your laptop and you just move around the house with your laptop, taking calls while you're stirring your, your, your dinner or taking calls from your front porch or answering emails from the bathroom, um, whatever, what you're doing is telling your brain that your entire house is a workplace. You are allowing work to claim every corner of your home, which is supposed to be a refuge. That's why so many people at this point are not working from home. They're living at work. And so in order to reestablish those boundaries, you have to, A, choose the place in your house where you work. Even if you have a small place, um, maybe you live in New York in a tiny little apartment, Choose that one corner of the kitchen table that is where work is. And when somebody calls you from work, go sit down or stand in that area. That's where you answer emails. That's where you go to get your work done. The other thing is that you have to choose an opening and closing sign. Just imagine yourself, like for you, you can say, okay, I I run the store of Christina. What I sell is Christina, (laughs) my time and my expertise. When do I open? When do I close? When's my lunch hour, right? What are the, what are the hours for, for Christina's shop? If you had to list your business on Google, when were the opening and closing times? And then honor those times. You just imagine yourself mentally flipping that sign over to closed and that's it. You walk away. You have to separate your, uh, your work email inbox from your personal email inbox so that you're not constantly seeing work emails come in. Don't check your Slack separate it out, establish those boundaries again so that you have a refuge so that there's a place that when you step into this area, your brain goes, okay, it's okay to let go. I don't have to be on high alert now. I can relax. You also invite us to make real connections. Can you talk about how in our personal time, we need to be doing that to really restore ourselves? Sure. Um, you know, in the past like 20 years or so since the fMRI, the functional MRI 
um, has become more affordable for more places <laughs> and more universities, we've gotten to know a lot about the way the brain functions. I mean, t- to be clear, we, there's a lot we don't, there's more that we don't know about the brain than that we do. You know, that's a given. But it has allowed us to watch the brain work while people are still conscious. And so there are a few immutable facts. One of them is that the connections that you make, the the interactions that you have on social media or on email or on texting or Slack are not authentic conversation. They do not provide you with the biofeedback that actually lowers your heart rate, lowers your cortisol level, your stress levels, um, and is healthy for you. Authentic conversation, which is conversation, as it turns out, that happens either in person or on the phone, or like we're doing right now. We're not connected by Zoom. So we're only having a conversation using our voices, meaning I'm not experiencing Zoom fatigue. And so this conversation is probably, I'm probably going to have a better mood after I get done than I went coming in. And the same is probably true for you. Because as long as a conversation is not hostile or competitive, human beings take a lot of benefit from it. Not just psychologically, although that's enough, but also physiologically, there are physiological changes that happen. And so these connections that we sometimes think we don't have time for, the the parties that we decide not to go to because we're too tired from work, excuse me, we have to ask ourselves, if our work is preventing us from doing the very thing that makes us happy, that brings us well-being, What's the point? Like, what is the point of the work anyway? If we can't have these human connections that make life rich and loving and joyful, isn't the point of work to make that that healthy life possible? And if not, <laughs> what what are we doing? I mean, honestly, I mean, that's a real question. This is a question I had to ask for myself. And it's one that I'm asking people through the course of the book is what is the purpose of your work if it does not allow you the time that you need to have real authentic relationships with other people? So when you're talking about making connections with others, those connections that we so often think we don't have time for, those are the connections that will make you feel better. You should always make time for them. In the book, you tell us on page 215 that our work is not the justification for our our existence. Um, But I think one of my favorite quotes is on page 195 when you had your job in Atlanta and you used to say to the people you worked with, quote, go the hell home. I think um, that's one of my uh, favorites. And I have a friend, you you cross-stitch and I immediately thought of her. She, the last two Christmases, she has cross-stitched something for me. Both were from people who were in my personal life who gave me a piece of advice, but I'm considering asking her if she can, she can cross stitch that one for me. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome. I definitely want a picture if you get that done. I mean, this year I'm giving away, um, I'm giving as gifts three, no, four different cross stitch projects that I finished over the course of the year. I mean, I said in the book that I'd taken up cross stitch again and I, I absolutely have. Um, and it's been Awesome. So, you know, many people in my life have <laughs> some very detailed cross stitches that take me months at a time. But yeah, I mean, why not? What a great idea to have this. If that's the quote that sort of motivates you and really relates to you, you should absolutely make it beautiful and hang it on your wall. Why not? 
I can't say on air what one of them was that she cross-stitched for me, but I'd be happy to send you a picture because everybody who sees it loves it. <laughs> I've cross-stitched a few of those myself. So for leisure, which I want to circle back to because the point of the book is do nothing and everybody listening, I'll just go ahead and speak on behalf of people I don't even know. We don't know how to do that anymore. We don't know how to do nothing. So in the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about what you call our default mode, uh, which you really get into around page 211 and you advocate for things like boredom, leisure and rambling. And I have to say, whenever I would say to my dad, I'm bored, he'd say, oh, it's so good for you to be bored. That's wonderful. So can you talk to us about why my dad was right? (laughs) Your dad was right. I'm sorry to tell you if that's been a point of contention. Um, Yes, the brain hates boredom. It does not like it at all. And so boredom is incredibly motivating for the brain. So let's, let's, you know, we don't experience boredom very much because what happens is we immediately pick up our phones or we turn on Netflix or whatever it may be. Um, but if you sit with the boredom for a while, if you just sit down on your couch or a chair somewhere or a park bench and allow that boredom to sit with you, what happens is your brain begins to wander. Um, it's sometimes known when the it's sometimes called the uh, a state of wakeful rest, like daydreaming, right? Um, and your brain will begin to sift through the files. It'll start going back over your memories. It'll it'll think back through some of the conversations you've had, articles you've had. It'll start sifting through information that has come into your brain, and you'll start to make new connections, have surprising thoughts. Think, oh God, I haven't called my Aunt Mary in a really, really long time. I need to call Aunt Mary. Oh, wait, wasn't I gonna, um, I, ent- I, I I planned on, on creating a succulent garden. Why didn't I do that? I need to get along to the, you'll suddenly remember things um, that you hadn't thought of for a while because your brain is no longer focused on a task, focused on getting something done. It's wandering. And that's extremely fertile ground. There, you know, we can watch an fMRI on an fMRI scan. You can watch the brain go into default mode network. And and a lot of the places that are involved in the in the default mode network are are your exec. You know, the outer layer of your brain. It's the the executive thinking, your your prefrontal cortex, where some of your most high level thinking happens. This is where you can begin to engage in some deep thought, perhaps. But most importantly, boredom can lead to surprise. You can surprise yourself. It doesn't mean you're inactive. And frankly, you usually will not be bored for very long because you, will, you won't be able to stand it for a huge amount of time, most likely. But it will break you out of your traditional or your habitual thinking. It will break you out of this sort of constantly on alert, soldier on the wall sort of habits and perhaps, perhaps bring you some new ideas. I love that. I was thinking of how during the pandemic, a lot of us were forced into boredom. It was so sudden, a lot of the shutdowns, uh, people found themselves living in a way they hadn't expected to and and didn't feel prepared for people were going on social media saying does anybody know what board games anybody still plays and where (laughs) you buy them what about puzzles you know people were just they were at a loss for how they were going to spend time 
And all of these things just sort of spontaneously started happening. People started recreating famous art pictures, you know, in their house. They'd pose their dog and their child and, uh, you know, recreate the Last Supper or what have you. And just the things people thought of out of absolute boredom. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have before. And I, the friend who cross-stitches, I started sending her texts on behalf of my dog that were replied to by her on behalf of a rabbit who lives in her yard. And it was the kind of thing like, I didn't think you should say out loud because it sounded a little weird, but but her significant other loves them. And I mentioned to it to a friend of mine who thought that was hilarious. So it turns out that in our boredom, we were actually quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we would... Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, I mean, so many things cropped up. All of the musicians who began giving concerts on their balconies, and then they would record, um, a, you know, a video or a TikTok of them playing some piece, and then other musicians would join in and and create a, a global band, right? Because they were all feeding off of each other's musical inspiration. So many people were not ready for inactivity when the pandemic hit. They didn't have anything in their house that was not linked to productivity, right? We don't, um, our, our parents and grandparents used to polish rocks and collect stamps and coins and do whittling. Like they did all kinds of hobbies that today we would think of as, as we would smugly sort of laugh as though who has time for that, right? I mean, they played games like Pinochle and Backgammon and did crosswords every day in pen in their crossword books, right? We weren't prepared, we didn't have hobbies anymore because we'd sort of taken everything out of our lives that couldn't be leveraged, that couldn't be used as part of our personal branding, that we couldn't be added to our CVs to make us a more attractive candidate for a promotion or a job. And so we got into these homes that were little more than a shell that was meant to help you rest until you went back to work. I mean, I think if there's one, uh, something productive that came out of what's essentially a very tragic global pandemic, I hope it has made us realize how focused we have been on working and nothing else at the expense of everything else. That this, the jobs that were supposed to enable us to live rich, full, joyful lives just took over. I wish that we had more time to talk, but I know that you have somewhere else you have to be. So in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, what do you hope listeners will take away? I hope it just leads them to ask questions of themselves rather than um, just going blindly through their day, rather than going online and reading those articles that says, this is what successful executives to do every morning and then copying someone else's habits. I, I hope it makes them more to ask good questions of themselves. Does, does this work for me? Waking up at 6 a.m. and going straight to the gym, is that serving me? Do I like it? Do I enjoy it? Is this making me happy? Um, to just ask questions of yourself. And, and imagine this point as we begin to emerge from the pandemic as a reset, not either going back to normal or finding a new normal, forget normal. What if you were inventing your life and your habits from scratch? What would that look like? What would your day look like? How would you spend your day? I just want people to, to begin to interrogate their own habits and the own assumptions they've made about their work, about their joy, about their play, and about their relationships. 
Thank you so much for being on the show today, Celeste Headley, and telling us about your new book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.